John 5, 5 through 15. If you're using a pew Bible, the verses are found on pages 74 and 75 in the New Testament. Hear the word of the Lord. Now a certain man was there who had had an infirmity 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been in that condition a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But when I'm coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well. He took up his bed and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. The Jews therefore said to him, who was cured, It's the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to carry your bed. He answered them, He who made me well said to me, Take up your bed and walk. Then they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was. For Jesus had withdrawn, a multitude being in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you've been made well. Sin no more, lest something worse happens to you. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, we have no other hope than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. Father, we have no other hope than your grace that has provided such a firm foundation for our feet to stand upon. And uh, Lord, we thank you for the mighty, matchless, conquering grace that you've poured out upon our lives. And Lord, we would live in a way that glorifies you as the source of that grace. And Lord, today we are looking at this, what this text shows us about glorifying the Christ of grace. So would you please accompany us, Lord, be with us and uh, help us sit under the preaching and ministry of your word in a way that is beneficial to our souls. Lord, bless my mouth. Let me speak nothing untrue or unhelpful, but only that which is good for edification. Lord, I, I pray that you would um, unfold the glory of Christ before our eyes this morning and help us see and hear and receive, believe in, and rely upon that glory which has already been revealed to us in your word. God, we ask for your blessing. Please grant it for Jesus' sake. Amen. 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 As I said, we're jumping back this morning into the account of Jesus healing a man in Jerusalem at the Pool of Bethesda. Um, last week we saw Jesus as the helper for the needy. As we see him in this passage, he's the one who sees the needy. He's the one who knows the condition of the needy. And most significantly, he's the one who is willing to help the needy. He's not only able, but he is willing to come in and be our helper. 
Now this week the plan was to look at a specific demand that this act of grace placed upon that man, which was the demand for holiness. I've been giving you guys teasers for that sermon the last couple of weeks, but uh, we're not going to get to that one today. Something else has uh, come up in my study of this passage that I think is very helpful for us to look at. Um, By God's grace, and potentially, next week we will be looking at healing and holiness, which is the title of the sermon, or was supposed to be the title of the sermon last week and this week, Third Time's a Charm. So, Instead, what I want to look at today is the connection that we see in this passage between experiencing Christ's healing grace and glorifying Christ as the giver of that grace. Experiencing Christ's healing grace and glorifying Christ as the giver of grace. I'm just going to pick up right in verse 8. So if you have your Bibles open, go ahead and look down with me. In verse 8, we see Jesus' response to uh, this man's response to him. Jesus asked in verse 6, this man with a debilitating disease, do you want to be healed? And the man responded in verse 7, basically saying, sir, it's not that I don't have the desire. I have the desire. What I don't have is the ability. I can't even get myself into the water to be healed, and there's no one else here who's willing to help me either. So I'm just stuck here. There's no one who can help. Well, Jesus, asking that question to draw to the surface this, the reality of this man's needy state and his helplessness, Jesus then steps in in order to be this man's perfect helper. And in verse 8, he shows himself able and willing to help, and he glorifies his power and his compassion by healing this man. Now, what I want to look at in verse 8 is that the healing that Jesus gives to this man is framed around three commands, or framed with three commands. In verse 8, we have the command, first of all, to rise, right? Get up. Stand up. Get up from where you're lying. That's a command. Second command, we have take up your bed, grab your mat, roll it up and carry it. You know, it's interesting, just as a parenthesis, this symbol of the man's brokenness is now becoming a symbol of Christ's victory in his life. What has carried this man in his inability, he's now standing in the power of Christ and carrying on his own. Just a wonderful picture of an illustration of restorative grace and how that works in our lives. But Jesus gives him the command, first of all, to rise, the command, secondly, to take up his bed, and then thirdly, to walk. Go, walk around, is basically what he says. Parade my work of healing you, and put it on display for everyone to see. And then in verse 9, what do we find that the result is? The result is perfect and immediate healing in this man's life. Immediately, the man was made well, And he took up his bed and walked, obeying the commands of Christ. Now, with that as as a summary, as an examination, as an 
uh, description of what is contained here in verse 8. There are a number of observations that we can make from what we see in this part of Jesus' interaction with this man. And today we're going to look at three. And the holiness element is a fourth observation that we're going to make by God's grace next week. So today we've got three observations we're making in reference to this interaction right here in verses 8 and 9 between Jesus and this man. So the first one that we see is the principle that when Christ gives a command, he also gives the power to obey that command. When Christ gives a command to a particular person, he gives that person the power to obey that command. You know, what's interesting and what really stood out to me in this passage is that we don't find here any explicit command or even any explicit statement saying that this man was healed. In other words, Jesus doesn't say, you're healed, now get up. You're healed, take up your bed and walk. Get up. We don't even find a statement that he, that he was healed from Jesus' mouth. What we find are simply these commands Commands that, naturally speaking, were impossible for this man to obey. Get up. Take up. Walk. This man couldn't do these things on his own. So why did Jesus command him to do these things when he knew that the man couldn't do them? Well, the answer there is obvious. It's because Jesus had a plan and a purpose to give this man the strength and the power that he needed to obey his commands. Now that illustrates an important truth for us to keep in mind, and I, I believe we should take it to heart more often than we do. Strength to obey the commands of Christ come as Christ gives those commands. It's like the man with the withered hand in, in Mark chapter 3, verse 5. Jesus looks at him with this withered hand and says, Stretch out your hand. And it's as the man stretched out his hand that Christ healed that hand and allowed it to stretch out. Or we could take Lazarus as an example, an illustration. John eleven forty three. It was as Lazarus was dead and in the tomb and wrapped up in grave clothes that Jesus commanded him, Lazarus, come forth. Now there was no possible way for Lazarus to obey Christ's command unless Christ first made him alive and able to obey. Right? So also with this man at the pool in Bethesda, of Bethesda. The fact that he couldn't do what Christ commanded him to do was exactly the point. See, Christ is not glorified when we obey his commands in our strength. It gives no glory to Christ if when Christ told this man to stand up, that man of his own will and of his own power took his stand. No, what gives Christ glory is that in this man's weakness, Christ's strength was magnified. See, Psalm 147.10, right? The, the Lord takes no pleasure in the strength of the horse nor in the leg of a man. God does not take pleasure in what you think you can do for him. 
He takes no pleasure in what this man could have striven to do on his behalf or for his glory. That's not what pleases Jesus, and that's not what glorifies Jesus. What glorifies Jesus is this man being utterly dependent upon Christ's power and strength to make him able to obey. Because when that man does obey the command of Christ, Christ's strength is magnified. You follow me? Where's Eger? Is Eger here? Eger's not here today. I don't have my amen, buddy. Beloved, this illustrates an important principle. Just as with this man, when Christ directs his commands towards you, he is not calling you to obey him in your strength. And just because Christ lays a command down at your feet does not mean that you have the strength to obey it. He gets glory when he who has commanded what he wills also chooses to will what he commands. Those are the words of Augustine, taken from his prayer anyway. Will what thou commandest, no, commandest what thou wilt and will what thou commandest. In other words, Lord, command me to do whatever you want me to do. You command me to, you command me to do whatever pleases you, but please give me the strength to do what you command me to do. Command whatever you will, but will what you command. And in that, Christ gets the glory when his strength makes us do the impossible. See, by nature, beloved, it's impossible for any one of us to obey any one of Christ's commands in our own strength. Christ commands each one of us to uh, love each other as he has loved us. How many of you find that to be an impossibility? Be a peacemaker. Be merciful to others. Love your enemies. Pray for those who stand against you and persecute you. Repent of your sins. Preach the gospel to the lost. Make disciples of all nations. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Believe in God. And believe also in me. Those are commands that span across the totality of the Christian life. And what that shows us is that the entirety of the Christian life is an impossibility if it's up to us and our strength. By nature, we do not have the power to obey any of these commands any more than that man did at the pool of Bethesda. Ephesians 2.1, like Lazarus, right? We are all dead in our trespasses and sins. You are spiritually dead before God. And if God lays a command at your feet and does not give you the, the, the revived life that enables you to interact and obey that command, you will just sit there in your deadness. You will not respond to him because you have a heart of stone that can't respond to him. See, by nature, we have a spiritual deadness that Romans 8, 7 through 8 says has left us hostile towards God, has left us unwilling to submit to the law of God, indeed has left us unable to submit to that law. 
See, we can't. It's left us in this so spiritually incapacitated. We are in this dead state spiritually that we can't even manifest and muster up the ability to do anything that's pleasing to God on our own. So what then makes any of us believe? What gives any of us the ability and the desire and the strength to obey the commands of Christ? Is it not when God comes and speaks over us the words of Ezekiel 16.6? When he sees us lying in our blood and choking on ourselves, he speaks over us, Live! I command you in your blood, live! Be alive before me! That's what brings us up from our deadness. See, it's, it's the strength of Christ himself that enables us to obey the commands of Christ. We labor, we strive, we, we, we seek, we press on to be pleasing to the Lord. Like this man in John 5, we obey the command of God. But the only reason we're able to obey is because Christ is working in us and giving us the strength to obey. It's like what Paul says in Colossians 1.29. He's laboring, he's striving to do what the Lord has called him to do, but he's only able to do any of it because God's power was mightily working within him. What Christ commands you to do, he will strengthen you to do. And that's how Christ gets glory in your life, just as it was with this man. When Christ commands, he gives the power to obey. That's the first observation. Second, the power to obey Christ's command is experienced as we obey his commands. The power to obey Christ's command is experienced as we obey his commands. Now, pay attention to the wording that I've used. I did not say that power to obey his command is given as we obey. I said power to obey is experienced as we obey his command. Verse 8, Jesus gives these commands to this man. Rise, take up, walk. And we're told in verse 9 that immediately that man was healed, but we are not told exactly when the healing happened. Did the man feel himself healed prior to getting up? Or did he simply get up and experience that healing as he did? We don't know. But clearly what this shows us is that it was as he began to stand up and as he began to take up his bed and as he began to walk, as he walked in obedience to those commands, that's when he began experiencing Christ's power enabling him to do it. Christ is pleased to glorify his power and grace in our lives, brothers and sisters, as we take steps forward in obeying his commands. Now, we see this illustrated all over the Bible. And I had to, I had to cut out like five illustrations I was going to walk through. It's that blessed art of exclusion, right? Brother Tom Askell just hounded me on that in my preaching class. You got to cut. You got to cut. It's like, I know, I know, but there's just so much there. Now, we see this reality illustrated all over the scriptures that Christ is pleased to manifest his power and allow his people to experience his grace as they move forward walking in obedience to his commands. So, for example, 
take Israel entering into the promised land. Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 32, it says that the Lord had sworn to them, I have given you the land. I've done it. It's yours. There's only one thing that remains. Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 21. The only thing that remains is the Lord's command for them to go into the land and take it. I promise you, I've given you the land. It's yours. I've already decreed it. It's for you. He even says in Deuteronomy 1.30 that he will go before them and he will fight on their behalf. The only thing they had to do was obey his command and go into the land and take hold of it. And as they did that, God manifested his strength in overcoming their enemies and giving them the promised land. You see that? He promised. It was already theirs. And it was as they moved forward in obedience that they experienced the reality of his power giving them the land. Now, it took 40 years for them to cycle back to do that again, right? 38 years. Beloved, it's the same way with you and me. Your, uh, your inability, and maybe I'm speaking to some of you now, I think I'm speaking to most of us. Your inability to obey the commands of Christ might be so ingrained in you that it's paralyzing. You feel yourself stuck. Like, I don't have the power to pray, so I can't pray. I don't have the strength to resist that sin, so I'm going to give in to that sin. I can't do that ministry. I can't witness to that person. I can't put that sin to death. I can't, I can't, I can't. You understand what the problem is there, right? Where's the focus? It's on you. As if God is calling you to do anything because you can do it. You should feel that rebuke, brothers and sisters. God does not call you to do anything because He thinks you can do it. He calls you to do things because He knows you can't. Beloved, you... You can do nothing in and of yourself. Didn't Jesus tell us that in John 15? I'm the vine, you're what? You're the branches. You go cut a branch off of a vine and you let it sit there in the yard and see if it ever bears fruit. It won't. Because it has no strength in itself. It has no power in itself. The only power that that branch has is the, is the, the power of life that flows to it out of the vine. That's you and Jesus, guys. That's me and Jesus. We can't do anything on ourselves. And anything that he commands us to do, we will fall flat on our face if we're trying to do it in our own strength. Whether that be praying, whether that be encouraging one another, whether that be loving each other sacrificially, whether that be being the man that God's called you to be or the woman that God's called you to be or the husband or the wife or living out that fullness of a single life that is solely devoted to worshiping God and doing his will. It doesn't matter what you are or where you are or what you're doing. You can't do any of it without the strength of God in your life. Now what's great about that is that when you say, I can't do this, I can't do that, I can't obey this command, I can't follow through on that, what the Lord's calling me to do, when you say those things, 
The great news about that is you are not telling Jesus anything he doesn't already know. You're not telling Jesus anything that was new to him. He gave you those commands fully aware that you can't obey them. Because, just as we see with this man in John 5, it is as you have faith enough to obey Christ's command that you will experience his power enabling you to obey his commands. See, that's where Jesus gets glory through our lives. When we obey his commands by his strength and his power. This is the confidence of Psalm 119.32, right? The psalmist says, I will run in the way of your commandments for you will enlarge my heart. I don't have the heart to run in the way of your commandments right now, but I'm going to move forward in obedience and I'm going to run fully in the way of your commandments because I believe, Lord, that you are going to strengthen me. You're going to enlarge my heart, my capacity to love you and worship you and follow you. You're going to enlarge that as I move forward in obedience. This is, this is what I love about Brother John Piper's book, Future Grace. It's living with hope and faith and future grace, that the God who has been with you in the past will not forsake you in the future. He sealed that promise in the blood of His Son. He who did not spare His own Son, you know this, but gave Him up for us all, will He not also with Him freely give us all things? This is the confidence Philippians 4.13, right? I was talking with a brother this morning, and this, this came up as he was talking. He said, I can do all things, Paul says, through Christ who strengthens me. Now, that's not talking about touchdowns and hockey goals. We can beat this team through Christ who strengthens us. No, what that's talking about is Paul's, that is Paul's declaration of faith in Christ. It's a declaration of his hope in Christ that Christ will empower him to live a Christ-honoring life of obedience in whatever circumstances facing him. I can be poor. I can be rich. I can be hungry. I can be satisfied. It doesn't matter what the circumstances is. I've learned the secret of being content. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That is walking by faith and not by sight. And that's how Christ glorifies his power and his grace in us. But we won't experience that until we actually, in faith, begin to obey. So that's observation number two. The power to obey Christ's command is experienced as we obey his commands. Last one. Observation number three. In the specific commands that Jesus gives to this man, we see a principle that Christ expects the grace that he gives to be used. Christ expects the grace that he gives to be used. Notice in John 5.8, when Jesus had graciously healed this man, what does he tell the man to do? Get up. Take up your mat, walk. In other words, he commanded the man, he commanded the man to walk in the fullness of the healing he had already experienced.
Jesus sovereignly and powerfully healed this man, but he didn't leave it at the healing. He could have just healed this man and left him lying there by the pool in Bethesda, giving him no commands, and the man could have just gone on his merry way. But that's not what Jesus intended to do when he poured grace out upon him. Jesus' intention in pouring grace into his life was that that man would begin to live in such a way that that grace would be magnified. I'm, going to make, I'm commanding you to get up. I'm commanding you to take up your mat. I'm commanding you to walk. And I want you to walk in the fullness of the power that I give you to do that. I want you to use my grace to obey my commands. See, the fact that this man was healed was a glorious thing. But the fullness of Christ's healing power was not put on display until the man began to operate in that power and function according to that healing. You guys follow me there? You with me? You tracking? Okay. I think I said I wasn't going to say that anymore. Forgive me. The fullness of Christ's healing power could have been present and yet not fully displayed. The commands that Christ gives this man were designed to put the healing power of Christ on display as the man operated in that power and functioned according to his healing. In fact, I would say that this is the only way for this man to glorify Christ as the giver of this healing grace was if he actually got up off his mat, walked in the fullness of the grace Jesus had given him around so that everybody could see it. I believe that's why Jesus healed this man, was so that in his healing, Jesus would glorify himself as the great healer. And that would happen as this man began to function and walk and live according to Christ's power. Now, beloved, the, the healing grace of Christ may look different in your life, but his expectation for you to use that grace remains the same. You may not have been lying there by the pool in Bethesda, pool of Bethesda. You, Jesus may not have come up to you after 38 years and told you to get up and take up your mat and walk. But the same intention behind pouring that grace out upon this man is also behind his grace that is poured out upon you. Because that's how his grace gets magnified in your life. Whether it's physical healings that many of us have experienced, or it's the blessings of provision, or it's all the spiritual blessings that Christ has poured out upon us, the way that you and I are going to glorify Christ with those blessings is by living out our lives in the fullness of those blessings. Does that make sense to you? Am I making sense, I mean? Maybe I'm more excited about this than you guys are. I don't know. What do I mean by that? What do I mean by the way that you and I are going to glorify Christ with those blessings of his grace is by living our lives in the fullness of those blessings? Well, let me give you some examples that I think might help explain what I mean. Do you have the grace of food at home? Yeah, many of us do have too much, brother. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we, got, we got to work on that, don't we? Yeah. yeah. Do you have the blessing of something to drink? Okay. So 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, 
that the way that you are going to glorify God as the giver of that food and the giver of that drink is to eat it and drink it in a way that brings him glory. That is, you are eating that food and you are drinking that drink in a way that is enjoying it, in a way that is receiving it as a gift from his hand. You are consciously acknowledging that God is the good giver who has poured this gift into your life and you are giving him thanks as the one who has provided it for you. So that whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, you do it all to the glory of God. Now, it's easy when we talk about food and drink like that. What about changing a diaper? Because Paul says, whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. You know, Jesus gives you the strength to care for your child and change that diaper. You know why he does that? So that he would be magnified and glorified in your life as you take care of that little precious one that's been entrusted to you. What about this one? Has Christ given you the grace of work? Do you have a skill? Do you have a job? Do you have some way, something that keeps you busy throughout the day, something you pour yourself into in laboring, trying to accomplish something? Well, if you have that, then the way you're going to glorify Christ in that work is Colossians, according to Colossians 3.17, is doing that work in the name of the Lord Jesus and giving thanks to God the Father through him as you're doing it. So you're not becoming the complainer around the water cooler at work. You're not griping about your boss. You're not complaining about the workload or the lack of pay or the ingratitude that's manifest towards you. You are diligently laboring with joy and thankfulness in the name of Jesus Christ. You are presenting a, a different picture of how to view life and circumstances and the whole world around you when you go forward working in the name of Jesus. So that, as Colossians 3.23 would say, God the Father is glorified through you as you heartily do your work for him. Right. But the glory of Christ's grace is not put on display unless you live like that. Or let's do another one. Have you experienced the grace of the new birth in your life? Jesus says, you can't enter into heaven. John chapter 3, you cannot enter into heaven unless you've been born from above. And he explains that as having been born again by the Holy Spirit. Have you been born of the Spirit of Christ? If you have, according to Romans chapter 6 verse 4, the way that you are going to put the reality and the glory of that saving grace on display. The way you're going to put the grace of Christ that caused you to be born again, the way you're going to put that on display is by walking in the fullness of the new life He's given you. You've been born again. You've been made new by the Spirit of Christ. The Word of God is now flooding your heart and you have this holy desire to live for and serve Him then the way you're going to glorify and magnify the grace that he's poured into your life is by living accordingly. Practically, what does that mean? That means dying to your sin. 
You want to magnify the grace of being born again in your life? You want to magnify Christ as the one who's caused you to die to your sin and be made alive in His name? Then start dying to your sin today. Put that sin to death by the power of the Spirit. Live according to the righteousness of God. Seek after obedience to His will. Serve in the strength that the Lord provides you to serve with. This is 1 Peter chapter 4, right? Verse 11, he says, whether you're someone who is speaking in the church of God or whether you are serving and ministering in the church of God, no matter which one it is, you are to be doing whatever you're doing with the ability that God provides so that He gets the glory through it in Jesus' name. See, if you are a Christian in this room, Christ saving and almighty power has raised you up from your sinfulness and your brokenness and your darkness and your deadness. Jesus has brought you out of the cesspool of your depravity. How are you going to magnify the glory of Christ as the one who's given that grace to you? By continuing to sit by the pool of your depravity? By continuing to live in sin that grace may abound, that will give glory to him if he's so gracious. God forbid, Paul says. Now you put the glory of that new spiritual life that Christ has given you on display when you walk in the fullness of its power and grace. So whether you're a single person or a dad or a mom a son or a daughter, a brother or sister, whether you're a church member or a pilot, whether you're a chemist or a mailman or a window cleaner or graphic designer, or you are are set apart for the holiness of being a worker at home, mothers. No matter what it is that you're doing, you're going to glorify Christ as the giver of grace in your life and in those circumstances by walking in the fullness of the grace he's given you in those circumstances. So practically, like this man in John 5, the way that you glorify Christ in your life is by getting up from your fallen, broken condition and as fully as possible living in the power and new life that Christ gives you. Because when you do that, you, are, you, you become this walking billboard for what the power of Christ can and does do in the lives of sinners. And you glorify Him in that way. Now, we're going to stop there for today. We're going to end there with with a brief follow-up. I really want to encourage some of you in this room who struggle to walk in the fullness of Christ's grace and serve Him in His strength. Beloved, let me encourage you, if that's you, let me exhort you. Don't let fears and doubts keep you from worshiping and glorifying the Christ of grace. Don't let past inabilities or past failures keep you from walking in His grace in the present moment. Your sin is not powerful enough to undo the strength of His grace. You cannot cause His holy blood that was shed for your redemption to become unholy by your sin. 
His blood has washed it away. It's completely gone. You have no reason to walk in shame and guilt over your sin. You need to stand up in the grace of Christ and walk in its fullness. You need to wash your conscience clean in the blood of the Lamb and know what Jesus was doing when He was hanging on that cross for you. He was redeeming you for His own possession that He might present you spotless and without blemish in His presence in the day of His glory. If that's His ultimate intention, do you think that your sins and failures in time are going to keep Him from operating with you in grace now? If he began with that intention and he's going to end by climaxing his intention for you and bringing you to glory, is he going to forsake you in the in-between? Don't let past inabilities and failures keep you from walking in his grace in the present moment. Don't be paralyzed into inaction by any sense of your failures. Because when you let that happen, you know what you're doing, right? When you let your own failures, your own inabilities paralyze you and keep you from walking in the fullness of Christ's grace that he's given you, you know what you're doing in that moment, right? You're robbing Christ of glory. You're robbing him of glory. I know, I know we think about that as, as some kind of false pious Type with some kind of false pious mentality, as if we're being humble by saying, oh, I'm such a sinner, I can't do that. I can't presume upon His grace in that way. That's not glorifying the Christ of grace. That's continuing to glorify yourself over Christ because you're saying your sin is too great and Christ's blood and grace is not enough. You're letting lesser things get in the way of the kind of life that Christ calls you to live and the kind of life that He promises He will give you strength to live. When you let your failures get in the way of walking obediently to the Lord, you are letting lesser things get in the way of Christ's promises for your life. As we come to an end, I I, want to bring this quote from J.C. Ryle because I think it was so helpful. J.C. Ryle was an an Anglican minister in the uh, basically mid to late 1800s. He died in 1900, I think. Speaking of believers, J.C. Ryle wrote, God, who has given them grace and a new heart and a new nature, has deprived them of all excuse if they do not live for his praise. Look at that. You believer, are you a believer in this room? Have you been made new through the gospel of Christ and washed in his blood and made a possession of God and given a holy love for his name? If that's you, then God has robbed you of any excuse you might have that would keep you from praising him fully with your life. He goes on to write, If the Savior of sinners gives us renewing grace and calls us by his Spirit, we may be sure that he expects us to use our grace and not go to sleep. He says, It is forgetfulness of this which causes many believers to grieve the Holy Spirit and makes them very useless and uncomfortable Christians. Feel yourself useless? Do you feel yourself as a Christian who is uncomfortable? Not like the pews are uncomfortable. Or my preaching time is uncomfortable. (laughs) Not like that. 
but one who is not able to be comforted with the grace of Christ. Is that you, beloved? If it is, could it be that rather than using the grace that Christ has poured into your life to live fully for Him, you've actually maybe gone to sleep under the mist and the shadow of despair and hopelessness or negligence? Let me exhort you with this, beloved, and then we're going to end. You need to recognize this reality that the devil would have you stagnate in the Christian life. Yes, stagnant, but he would have you stagnate, cease advancing in the Christian life and rot right where you are. He would have you buried under a sense of guilt and shame and the powerlessness that is you. He would have you stuck in the miry pit of what you used to be and what you fear other people think you still are. Now, I want to exhort you, beloved, that you do not give in to that. Don't bow the knee to the devil. Don't give in to those schemes. Don't be a pawn on his chessboard. Don't serve his ends. You need to take heed to Christ's command, beloved. Christ commands you, no matter who you are, no matter where you are, what you're going through, just like he did with this man, he commands you too to rise. He commands you to take hold of something and get up and walk for his glory. The devil would keep you laying by that pool of Bethesda until, you're, until the end of your days. You know, my brother and sister, please hear me. You have no reason. You, you have no reason to walk in shame. None. Do you trust in the love of Christ for you, who loved you knowing fully what you were? Do you trust in the Father's compassion and gracious nature, compassionate and gracious nature that has ordained for His Son to come be your perfect Savior? Do you trust in His promises that were made to you in the name of Jesus, His Son? Do you believe that Jesus died for you? Do you believe He lived for you? Do you believe that Jesus kept the law perfectly in your place so that you could stand in holiness and righteousness one day? Do you believe He took your sin upon Himself when He was on the cross? Do you believe He rose again from the dead in victory, conquering your sin, conquering hell for you? Do you believe that? Then you have no reason to walk in shame. Because that's not glorifying to Christ. You have no reason to walk in depression. You have no excuse for walking in despair. Joyless Christianity. Guys, we have every reason to be happy in the Lord. The reason we're not always happy is because we're not looking at the Lord rightly. Well, this is how we glorify Christ as the giver of grace in our lives. Not by being perfect in ourselves. Not by standing and serving in our own strength. 
But as Ephesians 6.10 says, we glorify Christ by standing strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. It's not your might, and it's not your strength. It's not even your ability to stand. It's just standing in His strength, resting and leaning upon and taking, placing your feet firmly upon this solid foundation of Christ and His power and strength. So the Christian life is a life of grace, brothers and sisters. It's not a life of do and duty, unless you're defining that duty as the duty to stand with God and grace and serve Him in love. This is how we glorify the Christ of grace, by receiving and resting and standing and walking in grace alone. Because then Christ, and not you, gets the glory from your life. And may He have it. And may He have it. Father, we do pray that Christ would get the glory from our lives. Please forgive us, Lord, for walking in shame and letting something as unclean as shame and guilt continue to linger where it ought not linger. Lord, if we're struggling with shamefulness, with helplessness and inability, I pray you would give us grace to run to that fountain of the blood of the Lamb that we would wash our garments white in his blood and our consciences would be clean before you through him. And Lord, that you would strengthen us with grace to move beyond where we are, to get up from that pool, to take up that mat, to walk in the power of your grace, to walk away from where we were and to walk in a new way. Lord, please apply this word in every way that it's needed and let your grace be magnified among us and through us and may Christ be exalted. In Jesus' name we pray, Father. Amen. I receive a benediction from Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20. Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will. May he strengthen you unto that end. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. May you go in peace.